Hi, I'm Sybil Virch from The Wealthy Life. I started in the financial services industry in 1994, and over the years I soon realized that the average Canadian didn't know many of the tips and tricks that would put more money in their pocket and create wealth. And it's not just about money. Being wealthy in your life is about being healthy, happy, financially secure, being surrounded by friends and family. So on The Wealthy Life, we hope to cover it all. Condo owners, beware. Have you been hit with a special assessment from your strata? Today, we have a strategy on how to pay for it. Then, for first-time home buyers, we learn some creative financing ideas and discover how your financial advisor gets paid to avoid potential conflicts of interest. All this and more today on The Wealthy Life. do you think you should pay for financial advice? I don't think you should have to pay for anything. My advice is always to find somebody that has a, a flat rate, will not ding you per, um, per piece of advice. They make money off your money. So I would advise everybody to go to a you're paying for them financial investor, financial advice. It's two or three hundred dollars, maybe a couple of hundred dollars, a couple of hours. It's the best decision you'll probably ever make. Have you been hit with a special assessment on your strata or your condo? Today's guest is Jan Price, a retiree wanting to make a smart financial decision regarding her condo fees. Jan, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Sybil. Tell me your story. Well, I, my career when I actually did that was first as a controller in a high-tech company in Vancouver and then Exciting. as a realtor here in Victoria. And then I decided to give myself a year off and travel. Wow. I, because my mother had died very young, actually, Aww. and so I decided that I wasn't going to wait until I retired to do some of the things that were on my bucket list. It was a bit of a wake-up call for yeah, you. It was. So it must have been a hard time. It was. But I took off and uh, traveled around the world. By yourself? Yes, by myself. What was that? feeling like? Actually it was terrific because one thing when you travel on your own people are much more open to you and you're much more open to so other people so I met lots of absolutely great people I was invited to people's homes I traveled with people for short periods of time that I met. Were uh, you ever scared? Uh, actually no the only time I was even a little bit nervous was in Italy and that's because there were was a great spate of um, people just pilfering from from people. So I just made sure, and I had kept things in all sorts of different pockets and places on my person. So you wouldn't so get that, robbed. So if I got robbed, I wouldn't lose everything. Now, did you have some attempted mugging? Type I didn't. Or pickpocketing? No, but I met people okay. who did. Yeah, it's kind and of scary. And that kind of did sort of. So where is your favorite place out of everywhere you traveled? <sighs> well, that's really difficult because there are different favorite places for different reasons. But I ultimately really liked Greece. Yes. And uh, there's more to that after I get back from my year's adventure. 
Really? So yeah, so, so I came, you came back. I came back and fully intended to pick up my real estate career when I got back and I just could not settle back in and I had you had the bug I had the bug and I'd also really learned that there's so much more to life than this treadmill that we can get ourselves on where we're just trying to amass bigger and better things and uh, I, I'd done that for a very long yes. time and so I decided I wanted to try living in another country for a year and did you? And I did. So I had really loved Australia, but I would have had to go there as a professional, which was what I was deciding I wasn't going to do. Yes, I you loved, wanted off the treadmill. I loved Ireland, but the weather's not so great. Mm -hmm. And I had really loved Greece. And Greece, this was in the mid-90s, and it was a very easy place to be at that time. All I had to do was get out of the country every six months. So I'd take the ferry over to Italy, take the ferry back and I was good to go for another six months. Wonderful. And how long did you stay there in total? I ended up staying there five and a half years. Wow. <laughs> then I came back to Canada because I thought, well, Jan, you have to be a good citizen and top up your CPP and look after your house because I did still own a house here and do all of that. And then a good friend of mine in Greece who owned a business learned that she had terminal cancer and she and her husband oh. wanted to go back to England for her last period of life. So they phoned me here in Victoria and said, would you consider coming back for a summer to look after the bookshop? It's either that or we close it down. So I thought, hmm, I could do with another summer in Greece. This was Fabulous. five years after I'd come back. And I went back and stayed for another five and a half years. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so but I now really <laughs> only came back to Canada at the end of 2010. Now that you're back in Canada, do you still own a house? I do. Well, I have a condo. Condo. Now. Yeah. And what's your big question for me today, Jan? Well, the big question is that I've been hit with a special assessment. Ouch. And it's whether I finance the special assessment through a mortgage or whether I take money from investments to pay the special assessment. Well, I will answer that question for you, but not quite yet. Don't go away. Find out the better financial option to pay strata assessments when we return. The Wealthy Life is brought to you by investment dealer Raymond James. Life well planned. See what a Raymond James advisor can do for you. Welcome back. We're here with Jan Price to find out if she should use her investments or get a loan to pay for her Strata Special Assessment. Well, Jan, you were telling us that you've been hit with this big special assessment. Did you, did this totally catch you off guard? Did no, you know? No, no, it, it didn't. We've okay. known for two to three years that this was going to happen at some point, but you know, D-Day has come, so to speak. And kind of putting it off till later is appealing, but here you are now and you got to pay the piper. That's correct. When you bought your condo in the first place, did you have a look at what the contingency fund was like? Yes, I did. And you know, for what people were talking about in 2000, 10, mm -hmm. it was perfectly good. It was healthy, it had a good balance. It was healthy, but what's happened is I think that stratas in general don't, were certainly not funding to depreciation report status. And 
contingency fund was just that. Oh, it's a rainy day fund, and yes. it looks like there's lots there for a rainy day. But I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I observe as well. A lot of organizations, stratas, townhouse complexes, they keep their strata fees low intentionally because the owners want it low for cash flow purposes. They also want it low for resale. When people are going to buy a property that has strata fees, ooh, gee, the strata fee's too high, maybe I won't mm -hmm. buy that property. The problem with that is, is it doesn't factor in depreciation. Absolutely, it's such a fallacious way of thinking of things. Well, you know, the building is eventually going to fall apart. It will not last forever. And if you don't put a few percent per year of the value of the property away, you're gonna be hit. I think for all of you watching, if you're part of a condo, condo or a strata, put extra away. Don't worry about just the strata. It's not gonna be enough over the long run. But here we are today, and you have a bill to pay. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I thought now I could just Pay, take money out of investments and be done with it and then not have to even think about it. But the fact of the matter is that I believe that my investments are earning more than certainly current interest rates or even that interest rates would catch up to over okay. the next few years. So I thought, well, I, maybe I should think about this a little bit more. Yeah, think about borrowing. So you've got some experience investing. How would you rate your risk tolerance level on a scale of one to 10, one being low, 10 being high? I'm probably right in the middle there, yep. at about the five to six range. Okay, and so a five to six range typically is a balanced portfolio, mm -hmm. so you're right. The average rate of return on that type of a portfolio should be higher than the cost to borrow. And if that's the case, then it would make sense to borrow instead. How do you feel about monthly payments? Can, do you have the cash flow to fund a borrowing cost? Yes, I do. And I know that if I do need to you know, prop that up a little bit, I can take small amounts out of my investments, but they're still earning more than the they amount are. that I would be taking out. So. so the real things to consider is one, cash flow, making sure you have enough cash flow to fund the payments mm -hmm. if you're gonna borrow. And number two is making sure that the average rate of return on your investments is higher than your borrowing costs. So it sounds like given your experience, that's the right angle for you is to mm -hmm. borrow. But for many of our viewers out there, make sure you get a second opinion because if the markets go down, your investment drops and you need the money to pay your debt, it's not gonna be a great feeling. So it really is a personal decision. Mm -hmm. Jan, thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thank you, Sybil, and thanks for answering my question for me. Great. Stay tuned. Up next, we'll learn some creative financing options for first-time homebuyers. The Wealthy Life is brought to you by investment dealer Raymond James. Life well-planned. See what a Raymond James advisor can do for you. wondering if your kids or grandkids are ever going to be able to afford their first home? With us now is David Steinberg, a mortgage broker with a special interest in helping first-time home buyers get into the housing market. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sybil. So tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into this mortgage brokerage business? Uh, at first, I was an account manager for a major bank, and I decided that I didn't want to work for a bank anymore, so I went out on my own. And how's that been for you? It's been really good. 
Thanks. What do you enjoy the most about what you do? I'm, I really get a lot of reward knowing that I'm helping people achieve their home ownership dreams. So it's, you know, well it's said. really rewarding knowing that I'm instrumental in helping people get into their first home. And that can be an exciting, scary, stressful time all at once. Definitely. I remember buying my first home. Interest rates were 10%. Wow. And I locked in for five years before they went up. Oh. They didn't go up. Right. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I bought my first home, and it was a good feeling. For sure. But saving the down payment is tough. What are some of the struggles first-time home buyers are dealing with today? Well, with our housing prices in Victoria, the our clients or our buyers have to come up with a much larger down payment than would be normal. Yes. Um, so it's it's a lot harder to save up, let's say, thirty, forty, fifty thousand uh, dollars. The other challenge that a lot of uh, folks are facing these days is the Canadian government has made uh, qualifying for a mortgage a lot stricter. So incomes have to be a lot higher to qualify for those higher mortgage amounts. So young people today, you know, they're graduating, they're going out and finding a job, but their income levels just may not be high enough to save a down payment first off. Right. And second of all, to even afford the payments, they may not be able to even get into the housing market. Right. But I understand you maybe have a creative solution for that. Right, yeah. And what I focus on with a lot of people is uh, making it more of a family affair and getting the parents or grandparents involved in helping their children get into the market. So, yes. um, what would that look like? I think that's a great idea. But is it, hey, mom and dad, give me some money? It's not just that. Um, a lot of parents also don't have the uh, the funds themselves to give their kids fifty or hundred thousand dollars. So that's where I really step in and start offering the parents themselves some options to perhaps refinance their home to help their kids come up with the down payment and then the kids will come up with some sort of repayment plan with their parents to eventually get that money back to them. Oh, I like that idea a lot. I'm not a big fan of just giving money to kids right? because it enables them maybe some bad behaviors. And it feels so good when you can do it on your own. So you're saying the parents can use the equity in their own home, right. tap into it, and then lend that money to their kids or grandkids, or they could give it away if right. they want to give it away. Yeah. I mean, you can't take it with you either, so it's that's a personal right. decision. And a lot of parents are happy to just uh, borrow the money themselves and then gift the money to their kids because, you know, with the ho high housing prices these days, the mortgage payment is, also, is almost just enough for the kids to handle with their mon monthly budget. Now, how about joint ownership? Do you see that happening very often where maybe the parent will co-own the property? So rather than just lending or giving them the money, they actually have a stake in the house? We do, yes. Uh, a lot of parents will co-sign uh, on the mortgage with their kids yes. to help them also qualify for that mortgage. And then in five or ten years down the road, when the kids can re-qualify on their own, the parents will come off the mortgage and uh, that'll be... That's great. Well, I was 21 when I bought my first house okay. at those crazy 10% rates. Uh, but my mom and dad did end up co-signing on the mortgage so that I could qualify for it. Right. And as soon as my income caught up to me enough so that I didn't need them, I had them removed because it was an independence thing for me. But I'm still grateful to this day that I had that support. Right, right. And these days, a lot of parents are getting involved with their children and helping them get into their, their first homes because as we see housing prices just going up, 
it's just going to become harder and harder for younger people to get into homes. And, and they're paying rent anyways, and I hate throwing money down the drain. So if their rent payment versus their mortgage payment are somewhat similar, the mortgage may be a little bit higher, but now it's for savings. They're building up equity exactly. in their future. They're creating wealth. Right. Which is fantastic. Right. So is it better for people to go into their bank, go through a mortgage broker? What are some of the benefits of working with a mortgage broker? Well, working with a mortgage broker gives that client a lot more options to choose their uh, different lenders. Um, it gives the client a lot of options to choose uh, different interest rates or different terms and conditions that are offered on different kinds of mortgages. So more selection. There's more selection and it's also a much more personalized kind of service. You know, uh, mortgage brokers, we will answer your call on the weekend or in the evening if there's something urgent, whereas I don't know if a bank necessarily would. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> um, so it's just a much more personalized service. Um, I find that I think the service is a lot quicker and a smoother process for the client. And of course, there's more selection with regards to rates. Because there's so many things to consider. Best rate isn't always the best. You want prepayment options. Right. You want, is it portability, transferability? All of these things to think about. You don't want to get locked in and have these crazy penalties if you sell the property down the road. Exactly. And mortgage brokers really just focus on mortgages themselves, whereas if you see somebody at a bank, they might be focusing on a range of different products to sell that client. So I find that when we have clients come to us, they really appreciate the fact that we do just specialize in mortgages. And how much of a down payment does a first-time home buyer need? The minimum down payment requirement is 5% down on any home under $500,000. Oh, That's, they've capped it. Well, that doesn't go very far these days. Right. And on any purchase on any portion of the purchase price above 500,000, 10% yes. is required on that. Now, if you're only putting the minimum down, CMHC insurance fees come into play, don't they? Right. Yes, CMHC is the uh, uh, Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation and what they're uh, they protect lenders against the borrowers defaulting. So in a way that, in a way, they're acting as a stabilizer for the housing market in Canada. But okay. there are insurance premiums that are involved when somebody is putting less than 20% down payment ah, on their home. That was going to be my next question. So as long as you have 20% down, you don't have to pay that additional one-time insurance fee at time of purchase. Right. So for 99% of buyers out there. Some lenders may still require a CMHC fee even if the client has 20% down, but those cases are very rare. And would credit rating and things like that come into play? Definitely. Credit rating is very important um, and also the income that you have to qualify for the mortgage also plays into the situation. And so home buyers, no matter what scenario this is under, you really need to do your research, shop around for the rate, find out if you qualify. And we've got a great guide for those of you out there wanting to know how to best prepare yourself for borrowing money. Contact us at thewealthylife.com and we'll send you a copy of the mortgage guide. David, thank you for being on the show today. It was great having you. Thanks so much. When we return, discover how much your financial advisor really gets paid. Welcome back. Thanks for your letters, emails, tweets, and messages. Today's question is from Austin in Charlottetown. Dear Sybil, 
My current advisor told me she receives multiple types of fees, including something called a trailer fee, but she would not explain what a trailer fee is or how much she was receiving from them. I want to make sure I am not overpaying for financial advice, and I'm worried that I can't get a clear answer from my advisor. What types of fees is a financial planner going to charge me? What is a reasonable amount to pay in fees for financial advice? Many thanks, Austin. Austin, this is a great question and very timely. First off, I am quite concerned, as you are, that your financial advisor can't clearly explain the fees involved. Your advisor should know that and be able to explain it to you in a very clear, concise manner. All financial advisors get paid a little bit differently. There's different distribution channels for advice. I'm not sure if you've gone into your bank branch or a credit union, if you're working with a small independent organization or a large independent wealth management firm. The reason it's important to note the difference is so that you really understand how much you're going to pay, how much your advisor gets paid, and what's in it for you at the end of the day. Asking about fees alone is not good enough. You need to compare the fees you're paying with the true advice you're getting. So if you're in mutual funds, the average mutual fund in Canada will charge anywhere from one to two and a half percent per year of the value of the money you have invested with them. Out of that, the financial advisor may get paid a trailer fee, which is what you were asking about, which is anywhere from 0.25 of 1% to 1% of that total fee you're paying. Now, some advisors are paid on a salary, so don't see the trailer fee, and maybe that's the case that you're dealing with. When it comes to financial planning, some full-service financial advisors offer financial planning services included in that total fee. Others do not, and you need to pay separately for it. To get an independent financial plan done from someone who is not charging you on investments, you're going to pay anywhere from an average of $500 to $5,000 and up, depending on how simple or complex your situation is. So as you can see, there's no quick, short answer. So I recommend you get a second opinion and your advisor should be able to answer the question clearly. Thanks for your question. And that wraps up this edition of The Wealthy Life, helping Canadians make smart financial decisions. Go to thewealthylife.com to become a member and receive free exclusive access to Wealthy Life workbooks, calculators, articles, and more to help you make the most out of what you have.